Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Um, I think one of the powerful things about Sunday morning is that we get to be here together. And no matter where we're coming from, um, there are times when I'll hold you up, there are times when you'll hold me up, and we can do that for each other as a body. No one, uh, God hasn't wired any of us to be strong all the time, Right? Um, and so that's, that is the function of the body, that when I'm weak, you're strong. When you're weak, I'm strong. And we get to, we get to work that way together. And sometimes even in our strengths, uh, God still wears us differently so that we, we lean on each other. And he does that on purpose because God wants us to be in community. Uh, God wants us to be in community. We are not designed to follow him by ourselves. We go alone, meaning like I follow him alone together with you. Does that make sense? Band of Brothers came out years ago. Uh, it was a war uh, kind of, um, I don't know what you call it, dramatic series. And their motto was, we go alone together. That means everybody is invested. Everybody is committed personally. It's not somebody else's faith. It's my faith. But I'm wired to not do it just by myself, but to go um, with everybody else. So we go alone together. Right? Okay. Um, there's a place in Texas called Highlands, and Matt, Pastor Matt Chandler talks about it in one of his sermons, and I want to uh, give you the story of Highlands and the background behind it, because what seems to be uh, is not. There's something deeper going on. Matt Chandler says, Highlands was a master-planned community. There are a lot, lot restrictions. Lots were big and there wasn't any let's go play in the backyard kind of lots. These were huge, expansive uh, ranges with massive houses, pasture land, magnificent home. This was the American dream embodied. However, not all was well in Highlands. Despite its external beauty, in 1965, the Champion Paper Mill worked out a contract with McGinnis Industrial Maintenance Corporation to dispose of Champion's industrial waste. And so they dug pits along the river, and they would dump all of their waste for the next two years in these unlined pits right next to the water source of Highlands. Uh, because, you know, if you're going to dump your waste, dump it next to the water source, right? Um, that makes sense. And so they dumped and they dumped and they dumped until the pits were filled. And then uh, the board of directors voted to abandon the site. And it got covered over and it got lost. So nobody really knew about it except the company that had been dumping and filling. Over the next four decades, the riverbank that separated the pits from the river gradually eroded until large sections of the toxic waste pits were submerged beneath the river. The site was basically unknown to anybody until 2005 when the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department realized what was there. By this time, the suburban sprawl had landed highlands two miles from these pits. And in 2008, Hurricane Ike struck just east of the pits and flooded the highlands area. The amount of sickness in highlands post-2008 was staggering. The amount of cancer and digestive disorders plus other disorders went through the roof. It's a terrifying idea that in the middle of such beauty, there can be such toxicity. Not, I have a confession to make. The sermon that I'm about to preach is not one that I think I would 
99 times out of 100 pick to give. Okay? Part of the beauty and the torture of creating a series where you say, let's just work through the book of James, uh, kind of verse by verse, section by section, is you don't get to say, uh, not that one. Okay? So I'm just, just between me and you, this is not a section I would pick, and yet I have to deliver it. Okay? So it's an unsettling one. There's graphic language involved. And uh, the picture that James uses and the way that he punches at us is uncomfortable. It might be the most uncomfortable passage in the entire book of James. It unsettles me, um, and I don't want to preach it. So here we go. Ready? <laughs> is that an okay disclaimer? Would you stand? Because the next words that we read are going to be the words of God uh, coming right out of James 5, verses 1 through 6. James writes, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, you have strong words for us. For your people who say we follow you, sometimes you get up in our face. This whole series through the book of James that we've been calling Faith Does, that says our faith is meant to do something, that we're not supposed to stand idle with a ticket to heaven. We want to follow you. Help us to be humble this morning. Give us the kind of posture where we allow you to challenge us and we allow you to poke us, uh, even in the discomfort. Father, help us, help us to be receptive this morning. Cover us with grace and kick us in the face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. James 5 starts out, Come now, you rich. Now, just maybe show of hands. When the words, come now, you rich, show up, how many of you think of somebody else? Right? That's not me. He's certainly not talking to me. You can see the cars that I drive. You can see, uh, you can see, you can see my bank account if you want. Um, I don't stack up as rich. And probably um, the grand majority of us, when we hear the words, come now, you rich, it's so easy to think, He's talking to somebody else. However, that's really not the case. We live in the wealthiest nation the world has ever known. Right now, even, in, uh, even as we're moving out of this great recession, we are wealthy beyond imagination to most of the world. So if you make, make $25,000 a year, you're in the world's top 2% of wealthiest people. And so that means, like, if you're making fifteen, seventeen thousand dollars, you're approaching the wealthiest tier of people in the world. Okay, 
That means you are somebody's Bill Gates. Somebody looks at you and says, I can't believe that kind of money, that anybody could have that kind of, what do they do with all that kind of money? Now, that may, that may not be the reality that it feels like for you or for me, but that's, that's the reality. We are wealthy. And so when James starts out, come now, you wealthy, we have to say, maybe, maybe he's talking to me. Maybe I can't push it aside so quickly. Maybe I really should pay attention to the challenge he's about to level. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And then he says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. And so he takes three different kinds of wealth. uh, Your riches have rotted. This is probably um, about food banks. Um, in In an agricultural society where they had, if you had a bank of corn, you had wealth, okay? In times where I have... Uh, a couple times where I visited a village in Goodell, one of, the, one of the things that we tried to help them set up was a food bank because locusts still happen and famines still happen. We don't understand that. We just go down to Hy-Vee or uh, Woodman's or, and they're out of something, I'm going to go to Piggly Wiggly. I'll just go to the next option, okay? And, uh, but famine still happens. And if you have a food bank, you have some kind of security against that. So James says, your riches have rotted, as in the corn that you have stored up is rotting away. He talks about garments being moth-eaten. So garments were another kind of wealth. You remember Joseph and the coat of many colors where his father, he's the favored son and his father father puts what on him? This coat, this beautiful garment that shows everybody his standing, his posture, his this is my most favorite son. I'm going, to sh- I'm going to give a garment to him. It says, your garments are moth-eaten. They get all holy, and it's like, oh, I, this was beautiful at one point, but now it's just, it's a mess. James says, your corn, your food is rotting away. The stuff that uh, makes you look rich with your clothing, it's got holes all over it now. It's disintegrating. The moths are getting to it. And then he says, maybe his most vivid picture is, your gold and your silver have corroded. Problem is gold and silver don't corrode, right? Not like that. Some translations use the word rust. They don't rust. And he's doing this on purpose to say, what you thought was secure is not. Is not. And he's looking forward to a future time to people who have saved up, stored up wealth, trusted in their wealth in any number of different ways, and he's saying, it's going away. It's gone. And not, a, not just is it going to be gone and you'll be left naked, you'll be left poor, you'll be left without security. He says, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So I don't know if you've... Um, one time I was in church and my pastor had, for whatever reason, had a nine-volt battery in his pocket and a quarter dropped in his pocket at the same time. And so the quarter and the nine-volt had this kind of connection. And as he's preaching in his pocket, his pocket starts on fire. Not literally, but he's like, wow! And he pulls it out and he's like, I got I to gotta get rid of that. James is painting this picture like the money that we are saving starts to burn us. It starts to burn. And um, 
It's not like it's just taken away. There's agony, agony. So he says, weep and howl for the miseries. Because the stuff that we have sought security in, that we thought would take care of us, is actually turns out to be the death of us. It actually turns out to be a tormentor, to be a punisher. That's what he says. Jesus says something similar, maybe not quite as graphic. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And James says, You've done what Jesus warned you not to do. You did what Jesus warned you not to do. He says, your heart has been put in all kinds of money. Jesus goes on and he says, you can't serve two masters, right? If you, you say you serve God, money has, has to submit to God. But often we, we submit our lives to money and you can't do both. Jesus says, you're going to love one and hate the other or you'll... You'll hate this first one and love the second. You can't do both. And James says, you've done it. You've done it. You chose the wrong master. You put your strength in other places. And in verse 4, he says, not only, not only is this going to hurt you, not only is this going to be the death of you, going to be the torture of you, in verse 4, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. So in the day, in the day, it's not like they had big lawnmowers and they were out mowing. This is somebody had land and then the landowners were wealthy and they would hire laborers to come and work the land in the agricultural system. You would, work, you would have people and you'd pay people and then at the end of the day, you would pay them. Sometimes, if you were stingy as a landowner, you would withhold payment and say, I'll get it to you tomorrow. Only, they were going to the market right after the day's work to get food for their family, which they didn't have. And so by withholding the payment, that family went home without food. And day after day after day, James goes on and he says... You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. So that sounds like, what in the world? But when he says, he says, by withholding rightful wages, by pushing people into poverty so you could climb up and get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, people are dying. And it's on you. It's on you. Verse 4 says, the love of money has affected the way they treat people. And verse 5 says, judgment is coming. He says, you fattened yourself up for the day of slaughter. So, you know, the happy story that we hear about the, the, the fattened calf that's brought out for a celebration is the prodigal son, right? So the son wanders away. He realizes what a mess he's become, and he comes back. And before he can even go with his plan to earn his way back into his dad's family. His dad humiliates himself, pulls up what we would call a dress, runs to his son, throws himself around the son, and wraps him up in love. 
and then says, kill the fattened calf, because that's what you, you would like, feed it and feed it and feed it and feed it, and, the, and it was all leading to death. And James has this picture, that you're the fattened calf, but it's not going to be a celebration. You're just fattening yourself up for slaughter. A commentator on the book of James writes this. He says, James calls us to a sudden opening of our eyes to see that as Christians in the wealthiest nation in human history, we bear a responsibility to understand the power and the peril of our wealth and to use it responsibly. And Ron Sider wrote a book called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And he, he sends this dagger, I think. He writes, Most Christians in the Northern Hemisphere simply do not believe Jesus' teaching against the deadly danger of possessions. We all know that Jesus warned that possessions are highly dangerous, so dangerous, in fact, that it's extremely difficult for a rich person to be a Christian at all. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, said Jesus. But we do not believe Jesus. Christians in the United States live in the richest society in the history of the world, surrounded by a billion hungry neighbors. Yet we insist on more and more. If Jesus was so un-American that he considered riches dangerous, then we must ignore or reinterpret his message. I think he just slams us. Because it goes, I think, in stark contrast to the American dream. And for all the merit of the American dream that says, this is a place where no matter where you come from in a class system, no matter where you come from, you can make something of yourself. You can succeed if you put effort into it. Except that just may not be the goal of life. Jesus, I don't think, and this is just me, I don't, I don't think Jesus is a big fan of the American dream. Not because he doesn't see value in people or think people have all kinds of potential, but because the American dream is built on, if I want it, I can do it, and then I can get it. The American dream is all about rugged individualism for my benefit. And Jesus flips it. And he says, maybe I want you to make a lot of money, so you can give a lot of money. Maybe I want, you to, I want you to use your wealth. I want you to see your wealth, not even as your wealth, but as something that I have entrusted to you so that you could use for the benefit of others. Not something that you use just for your own security and your own comfort, but something that you can give and be generous with. And this is not, this is, this is not a message that I would want to preach. This is not a message that I live out really, really well. Because a lot of my money goes to me. A lot of my money goes to my family and how we can live a comfortable life. And I'm guessing a lot of yours does too. And James says, you be careful. So we have to recognize the power and the peril of the wealth that we have. And here's, here's the peril. 
here's the danger that we get in. Here's kind of the track record that uh, James is setting out. He says, first, money will cause you to ignore God. Second, money will cause you to ignore your sisters and your brothers. And then third, money is going to bring judgment. And that's, that's kind of the flow. We ignore God. When we start to put our, our emphasis on money, on money, we ignore God. Philippians 2 says, your attitude, if you follow Jesus, your attitude should be the same as Jesus. Who, even though he had all the riches in heaven, even though he sat on the throne in heaven, didn't consider that, that something to be held tightly to. And he gave it up so that he could come down here and not live as a king, you know, go from the riches of heaven to the riches of the world, which would be a drop, right? So he didn't come to be a king. He came to be born as a poor baby to poor parents. He grew up in a poor community and he, he, he came and he humbled himself and he lived as a servant and he humbled himself to die and not just kind of like a quick, easy death, the most gruesome death that the world has known. This is Jesus, the king of heaven with everything at his disposal, gives it up gives it up for our benefit so that we could receive because of that. It says your attitude should be his. Karl Barth said, instead of striving for a higher position, more power and more influence, Jesus moves from the heights to the depths, from victory to defeat, from riches to poverty, from triumphs to suffering, from life to death. And this is the image of the ladder versus the cross, right? Instead of climbing higher and higher and higher, Jesus doesn't climb the ladder. He gets down and he climbs the cross. And then he calls us to the same kind of life. And when we put our emphasis on safety and security and money, we ignore God. We don't live the life that he's called us to. We don't put our security in him. We don't trust in him we trust in our own resourcefulness and what we can build up. If you've never heard the name Oscar Romero, he's a guy that you should look up. An archbishop uh, in South America, this guy had some powerful things to say, and he said, how many there are that would better not call themselves Christians because they have no faith? They have more faith in their money and possessions than in the God who fashioned their possessions and money. And that's the irony. The God who gives us everything that we have, we start to trust the presence rather than his presence with us, right? We start to, we start to trust in the gift rather than the giver. And when we do that, Romero says, we might as not we might as well not even call ourselves Christians. We ignore God. Second is we ignore our brothers and sisters. The American dream is individualistic in nature. It doesn't really care about others. And so the question, the question that we should have driven into us is, are you giving? Where, where is your money going? And that is from, like, if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're in good company, Okay? But there's something. 
my daughter Lucy found two pennies today to put in the offering. And that's silly. But she's getting this in her mind to say, I want something to give. I want to be able to give something. And then she has joy in giving, you know, two pennies. There's something. You may not have much, but we ask, where are you giving? And that's, that's not like uh, when, that, uh, when the plate passes, like we're watching. Like you, you better put in, right? That's, it's just, it's kind of open-ended. I'm, I don't really care if you give here at the church. If God puts that on your heart, then, uh, then I want you to. I don't want you to disobey him. But if he's called you to give in other ways, then give in other ways. I want you to be faithful to what God is telling you to do. Where is your money going? What does your bank statement say? If you do online banking or a checkbook or however, you look at that and you say, okay, it's going here, it's going here, it's going here. And at the end of the month, I spent way more on pizza than I realized. Right? I don't know if you guys have ever done that and said, I, I ate out that much? How in the world? I do not have that kind of money. I should not be doing that. But it was good then. I will not quickly forget in the interviewing process here at DR, one of, the, one of probably the most pressed days of my life was when the elders said, we want to spend a whole day with you and drill you. We want to get to know you, and we don't want to just get to know you like, nice, we're going to be your friends. We want to, we want, we want to test you hard. So I spent 10 hours in a day with the elders, and they asked all kinds of questions. As if to say, uh, bear yourself to us, okay? Get real vulnerable. We're going to ask you questions that make you uneasy because this is important. And I don't think I passed all of them, but there's grace. <laughs> One of the questions that they asked was, how do you do at giving? And I'll... I'll I'll not quickly forget Tim Dunn looking me in the eyes and say, you can have all the answers to all the other questions. You can be a person of high integrity in all the other ways, but if you are not a person who is growing in giving, I think your integrity is shot. If you say you follow Jesus and you're not growing in generosity, I don't have to look any farther. Like, uh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. This goes, how we use our money is so important, and it goes from uh, how we tip, how we tip to the way we shop, knowing where our food comes from. Uh, fair trade has been a cool movement because it doesn't just put all the focus on what I'm getting and what is the cheapest way I can get what I want? Fair trade opens it up and broadens it to something that says, well, somebody made your shirt. And there are a lot of places in the world where they're working in places that are condemnable and the buildings actually fall down and kill them. I hope you like your shirt. And fair trade says, we want to take care of the people who are making the clothes that you're going to wear. And there's, there's this, well, I need to be a good steward of my money, so I'm going to prefer... This kind of thing, because it costs less. And maybe, 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 Jesus would challenge and say, I want you to buy a more expensive shirt. 
because I want you to see a bigger picture. Not so that you get a better shirt, but because there is a circle here of people involved, and it's not just you. I have started uh, one little thing. I have started to really prefer fair trade chocolate. <laughs> That's an easy deal to like, right? Because it's better. Um, and you're going you're gonna to pay more for it, but understanding the, the farmers who worked on these cocoa beans are getting paid a fair wage. Instead of, instead of people who live in uh, practical slavery, in debts that they will never be able to pay off with the money that they're making. And so fair trade is not just a kind of a hippie, frivolous, let's live in Madison and think that way kind of thing. Okay, This is from a guy moving from Fond du Lac. Okay. Um, fair trade is legit. Fair trade looks at a bigger picture. And James says, how are you using uh, your money? He says, will you look up and see the needs around you? What are you doing about it? What are the needs in our community right here, in our neighborhood right here, in your neighborhood right where you live? And if you just put your eyes down and you don't pick them up, James says, um... He likens it to murder. He's not pulling punches. And there are people with needs all around you. And he just finished saying at the end, the last verse of chapter 4, he says, if you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, that's sin too. Sin isn't just all the bad stuff you do. Sin is all the good stuff that you don't do. So we're always sinning, right? We are always sinning and we always need grace. The only way we make it is by grace. And yet James challenges us. Don't ignore God. Don't ignore your sisters and brothers. And if we do those, judgment is coming. In Matthew 25, Jesus has this parable of the sheep and the goats. And he surprises us evangelical Christians. He surprises us people who say we follow Jesus by having a personal relationship with him. Uh, I'm saved by grace. And Jesus somehow surprises us because he talks about judgment on our actions. And that's not to say you earn your way to a relationship with Christ and grace isn't essential. What he's saying is empty grace is not, empty grace is not enough to save you. If you really get grace, you get changed. If you really get grace, a transformation happens inside of you and you start to live out of that. And Jesus says, if you took care of people, I'm going to approve of you. And if you didn't take care of people, I'm going to say, I never knew you. Because I don't know how to reconcile somebody saying, I love God, but not loving people, not taking care of people. For Jesus, that's incompatible. And that's why Ron Sider says, we don't believe him, right? We have to read Well, he didn't really mean that. He, he meant something different, okay? I need to soften the blow. James is not attacking wealth. He's attacking selfish wealth. So if you're driving uh, a Mercedes here today, that doesn't mean that you're driving toward judgment all by itself. Because you might be the most generous person in this room. 
you might be the person who gives more and more and more. You might even be a person who gives um, percentage-wise an incredible amount of money. Some of my students in the past have said, I've, I've figured out what I want to do. I want to go in business and I want to get really successful. And I've said, great, do it and make as much money as you can and then give as much as you can. Wealth isn't the enemy. It's wealth used on me. All of it, primarily and selfishly. Our failure to act, says James, is a sin more grievous than we have imagined. So we have to ask, okay, thank you for dumping on us. (laughs) What do I do with that? What in the world? If you're a visitor here, we really are a happy place to be. (laughs) A lot of the time, there's a lot of joy in this room. Uh, But we want to take seriously the challenges by God. So Philippians 2 would be our first place, I think or a first place that we could look to say, what do we do with this? We look at the God who poured himself out for us. We look at the God who was not stingy for us, who gave everything for us. James, uh, in the opening verses of his book, says every good and perfect gift is from who? From God. And he's talking about the character of God being a generous God. So we're getting a challenge from a generous God. This is not God who says, I want you to give and give and give and give and give. This is the God who says, I want you to give and give and give and give and give like me. Right? And that changes something. That changes something. If we look at Jesus and we recognize how much he gave for us, maybe that can motivate us to say, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 19 says, Command those who are rich. Again, us maybe, right? not somebody else. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that. He says, your generosity sets you up for the life that is truly life. You go for money and you build your security and your satisfaction and your comfort in money and it will fail you. And worse than that, it will cause you to to stand judged. It will kill you. But if you switch toward generosity, you take hold of something that's deeper, something that's actually life and joy. Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where the thieves do not break in and steal, and for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he continues, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great the darkness. This has always been a weird, like, what are you talking about, Jesus? That, like, you're smart, I get it. And you're God, so it means something, but I don't get it. Because I'm not Hebrew. 
So when somebody pointed out to me that Jesus is actually using a Hebrew Jewish word picture here, it's like, oh, thank you. If you could have just said that, that would have been really helpful. So in, uh, in the Hebrew world, there was something called the good eye. That person has a good eye, and it meant that person is generous. That person is giving. That person, if you come to their door, is going to welcome you and be hospitable, and they're going to give and give and give and give. So Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if you're generous, your whole body is full of light. Your whole life is full of light. But if you're stingy, all we see is darkness. Now it makes more sense to me. So if I follow Jesus and I'm stingy, nobody gets to see the light. If I follow Jesus and I'm generous, then people get the blessing of it. And then he says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in some translations, the word money is capitalized. In some translations, the word money is translated like something like mammon, that they make a god of it. It's capitalized to say money is the God being worshipped. It is personified. You can't serve God and the God of money. You can't do it, Jesus says. And so give. 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 Give not to avoid judgment. Give not to avoid punishment. But give because of what God gave you. Give because we worship a God who is at the core of who he is, he's generous, overflowing in generosity, and he calls us to follow him. Have you ever been on the receiving end of generosity? It is amazing. So for three years of my life, starting in 2011, I jumped into seminary, and I was doing uh, full-time, I was working full-time at the church, I was going to school full-time, and then uh, we have two kids, two girls, and then in the middle of seminary, we, a third one jumps out, okay? Um, so it's hard. It was hard to navigate it. At, at the end, as I'm approaching the finish line, and I can't even celebrate the finish line because all I want to do is cross it and fall over and take a nap, okay? That's the light at the end of my tunnel is I get to sleep a little bit. And Leslie says, I want to buy you a canoe. So we open up. Craigslist to say, let's find a dinger. Because <laughs> I would love like 150 bucks, 300. That's, that's our range. Let's, and that to me was a gift that Leslie would say, I want to buy you this. And say, let's go paddle and be still. Some guys in the church heard about it up in Fond du Lac. And they say, sometimes Craigslist is good. Sometimes Craigslist doesn't cut it. And he, this one guy started rallying men in the church that blew up on Facebook and they created the secret society um, that they said, um, let's get generous. Unbeknownst to me. And then when Leslie and I and the kids went camping with some friends, we pulled into our camp spot and on the picnic table is the most gorgeous, brand new canoe I've ever seen and it's got fancy wooden paddles and like preppy life jackets and there's there's even a like a canoe trolley that I returned because I said I'll never use that but that's awesome 
okay? Uh, and they just said, we heard you wanted a canoe. There is a mix when you are on the receiving end of something like humility, and I don't deserve this, and you guys are awesome. I can't believe this. This is mine. This is my canoe. Wow. You, you did that for me? And I love that. And he's still at it. This guy is still at it. He found another need and some people who needed a car. And he's got another secret society going. And he, he's like, hey, time to man up again. Guys, give. Let's give. Avoid judgment. Give. He's like, just kidding. Uh, just kidding on the judgment thing, but really give. <laughs> Open your pockets up. And there's something about that that is so engaging to me that says, we want to be silly with our giving. We want to be silly with our giving. There's a verse that says, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm not a big Greek guy, and there are going to be very few times that I whip Greek out on you. Um, when, I, when you look up the Greek word for cheerful, the Greek word is hilaros. What word does that sound like? Hilarious. Yeah, hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. A hilarious giver that says, what are you doing? That is, I'm astounded that you would do that. And that's the God we serve, right? That we would look at him and say, what are you thinking? You had a throne. Why? Why? In heaven's name, why in your name would you ever get down off of that throne and come here with us? Don't you know who we are? Don't you know we'll probably kill you because we don't like what you say? So, yeah, I get it. I'm going to be hilarious in my giving. I'm going to give till I have nothing more to give. That's, that's what we get called into. It's a giving that leads to life. So how can you be generous? There's time, talent, and treasure. And we could, we could do a whole series on this. But you can give your time. It's not all about money. Where can you invest your time and be a big brother or big sister? Be a mentor. Be a tutor. If you have kids, play with your kids. That you spend time with your kids. You see a friend in need and you help them. Don't just wait to be asked, but you say, hey, I, I see that you're in need here. How can I help out? You give your time. You give your talent. Like, you're good at stuff. I don't know what you're good at, but you're good at, you're good at something. And you can give that away. You can coach. You can teach. You can help. I was floored. I got really into uh, Strengths Finder. It's all about how we're wired and then figuring out what our strengths are and playing to our strengths. Really, really good stuff. I love it. I'm wired that way. Some people are like, whatever. Okay? But um, when I got into it, 
I actually had somebody, it costs buckets to go get certified as a StrengthsFinder coach. And then you get to make money doing like consultation. Um, this guy at 100 bucks an hour came and said, I'll give, it, I'll give it to you for free. You just call me when you want. And I love what you're doing in ministry. I'll just, I can charge 100 bucks an hour corporately, but I'm just going to give it to you. That's somebody giving his talent and his time to me, and it's valuable. And you give your treasure. Use your money well. Give it away. Tip well. Pay what's fair. If you find yourself in a situation that offers you comfort by hurting other people, do something to change the situation. When I was in kindergarten, I remember crossing the street, and at that point they used sixth graders as crossing guards. Okay? So in kindergarten, I remember crossing the street and looking up at the sixth grader who was a giant. Wow, someday I'll be like that. And then I worked in student ministry for 15 years, and I recognized sixth graders are not giants. It's a different perspective, right? You might not feel like a giant, but you are somebody's giant. There is a kindergartner in your life looking up at you saying, someday maybe I can be like that. And you can lead them in the way of generosity. How can you give? How can you listen to God and obey him? Kind of a, a closing story, and then we'll be done. I just uh, had dinner a couple nights ago with a friend from uh, Africa. And he's over here visiting. He lives in Senegal. Um, and he told me kind of a section of his life story. He said he left his country to go to Senegal to earn his master's in agriculture. And while he was there, his, um, his uncle, who was the president of his country, okay, so like name dropping here, president of his country says, when you finish your master's, come home. I'll have a place for you. And it's not just a place. I'm going to have a spread. I'm going to have a farm for you. And I'm going to have a home on that farm with your name on it. I want you to come home. And my friend says... That's my dream. That's my life dream. And then God told me to stay in Senegal. God told me to say no. Which is easier said than done if your uncle is the president. So he finishes his master and his uncle sends a cousin to say, no, we mean it. Like, come home. Do your family honor and come home. Work this farm and you will be rich. And he says, I honor you. And I honor my uncle, but I'm a Christian, and I have to honor God more. I have to say no, because God is clearly telling me to stay here, and I don't know why, but he is. And so he started working for um, Christian organizations that give. And part of his role right now is working with African villages in Senegal to help them, uh, help them spread churches, plant churches, and then help them with stuff like running water and food banks, and community gardens. And he's planting, uh, he's giving his, he's using his degree in uh, agriculture to, and giving it away. A little while later, there was a coup in his home country. And his uncle was exiled. And then people who were 
running the coup, started going after his relations. And they showed up at what would be his house. And his brother had moved in and had taken over running the farm and living there. And they killed his brother. And I'm thinking about James 5. Going, what in the world? You are a living example that if you had chased money, it would have killed you. Right? If you chase money, you will pay for it in one way or another. And he said, yeah, following God saved my life. If you chase the American dream, it will kill you. It will not be able to deliver. If you give up your life and give it away, following Jesus, that leads to life. How can you grow in generosity? Let's pray. Father, these are hard words to grapple with. Could it be us? Could we be the people that you're talking to and the stuff that we're chasing after is empty at best and at worst will steal our life away? Is it possible that we're those people? Father, we love you. We look at you and we can see your generosity. That you didn't hold on to your riches, but you emptied yourself and gave to us. And if we see that, when we see that, we are in awe. I pray that you would continue to do the work in us that transforms us from the inside out Make us generous people in the same way that you are generous. Help us to use what we've been given to help others. Kill the selfishness in us before it kills us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.